Amen. Thank you, church. Um, for the last few weeks, several weeks actually, we have been in Romans chapter 5, where Paul has laid out for us the hope that we have in Jesus. At the beginning of this chapter, he points to the peace we have now with God through Jesus' work on our behalf. He shows us that we have access to God's infinite storehouse of grace. He even goes as far to tell us that we can rejoice in our sufferings because they're producing in us something absolutely amazing. Then in the second half of chapter 5, Paul goes deeply theological. He says this, he says, all humanity is born in Adam. What this means is that we all stand condemned before God, precisely because we inherited Adam's sin guilt, meaning that just as Adam stood guilty before God for the sin that he committed, so we stand guilty before God for the sin that Adam committed. This is because Adam is our federal head. Carlton preached on this several weeks, meaning that he represented us in the garden. Therefore, his sin was accounted to us. So all humanity, what the scriptures teach, have inherited Adam's sin guilt. All humanity stands condemned. But as terrible as that sounds, it just gets worse. We read that not only do we inherit Adam's sin guilt, but we also inherit his polluted nature. You see, after Adam sinned, God condemned him But Adam's new sinful nature was passed on to his offspring. We call this polluted nature that Adam passed down to his offspring the doctrine of total depravity. You may have heard that before. What total depravity means is that sin has corrupted or polluted all of our being. Practically speaking, total depravity means that there is no part of our being left untouched by sin. The mind, as well as our emotions, and even our appetites are set against God. Now, when we talk about these two things together, Adam's guilt or his condemnation and the polluted nature that we receive from Adam as well, we refer to these two things, shorthand, as the doctrine of original sin, And what you need to know is that not all people believe in original sin. Some believe that we are born good and then have the opportunity to choose evil if we so wish. Others believe that we're born in a neutral state. And it's just up to you. Will you be good or will you be bad? This is not what Scripture teaches. My previous boss used to make a joke and say that there were some early church fathers that did not believe in original sin. But, he said, as best as we can tell, none of them had children. Right? Parenting will teach you quite a bit. I was just sharing this same idea with my home group this past week, and uh, and I was telling them that we even see this in my daughter, who is five, and to my knowledge has not ever been exposed to violence. We don't live in a violent home, praise God, uh, but, but to my knowledge, we're, we're very strict on what she watches. We, I don't think she's seen violence, but just out of her own nature, the other day in our kitchen, uh, 
we look over and she's mad at her younger brother, the uh, three-year-old, as she always is. They're always bickering. We look over and she has both of her hands wrapped around his neck. And we're just thinking, what is going on? Like, we didn't teach that. Um, Just choking the life out of the little dude. So me and Casey just watching disbelief, and we're like, how does this happen, right? But here's the thing. If we just think back to Genesis 4, we have the very first son of Adam and Eve. What was his name? Cain. And what is Cain so well known for? Killing his younger brother. I mean, think about it. Cain was the inventor of murder. Murder had not ever happened before this point, and Cain invented it. No one had to teach him that. It was simply part of his fallen nature. So this depravity or this polluted nature was the essence of his person. It's the essence of all people who are in Adam. Now, you might be wondering, okay, all right, why are we making such a big deal about sin? Why are we going in such detail about this doctrine? And why is it so important that we need to know all of these nuances, his condemnation and his, and his polluted nature? Like, why are you telling us all this? Well, Cornelius Plantinga a very smart man who writes a book about sin, and this is what he says. The sober truth is that without full disclosure on sin, the gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary, and finally, uninteresting. So church, we must always be explicit about the nature of sin. If not, we are in definite danger of losing the gospel. And I get it. In, in our culture, it's not popular to talk about condemnation and guilt inherited and sinful desires that are just there at part of your DNA. But we must because Scripture talks about them. But in chapter 5, Paul also tells us the good news of God's grace. He says, if by Adam's one sin, many became sinners, much more. By the grace of Jesus Christ will many be made righteous. And Paul goes even further. He says that the law comes and actually increases the trespass. This means that the law reveals how much sin there is, but it also multiplies the sin because as Carlton said last week, When you give law to a fallen people, that law is going to be broken all the more. So sin is increasing, but Paul says that it's then that grace abounds all the more. The biblical language is literally where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Remember Carlton mentioned that when you take any amount away from infinite, What are you left with? Infinite, right? So God is never low on grace. The storehouse of his riches never runs dry. He always has grace. But it's even better than that. Paul's point is that our sin, check this, our sin actually 
magnifies the grace of Jesus. Our sin magnifies his grace. My older brother gave an awesome analogy of this a few days ago. He said, when you go out to eat with someone and they buy your food, you think, wow, that's so nice of that person. I am so thankful they're willing to pay $12 out of their own pocket for my meal. Right? I mean, we're grateful. We think that's super generous. But when you go out to eat with 20 people to a Ruth Chris Steakhouse and someone says, it'll all be on one check, your all is greater because the act is so much more grand, right? So this is the idea. The more sin, the bigger the sin, the more grand and more marvelous Jesus' grace is on display. (laughs) Because he's got it, church. He's got it. He's got it. (sighs) Now, I know as you hear this, this makes probably even most of you nervous. Oh my goodness. Our sin magnifies the grace of Jesus? I mean, it's almost like if we go back to the analogy... Hey, guys, if Jesus is paying for the food, order whatever you want. Appetizers, desserts, couple entrees, right? In other words, let's sin all the more. And Paul knows this is where our minds would go, and so he writes chapter 6. So read chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 with me. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Father, this is your word, and I pray that your word would have its full effect on our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in chapter 5, Paul set up a conundrum. It is our sin that magnifies God's grace. So in chapter 6, he goes on to answer the question on everyone's mind. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers this, church, with an emphatic By no means. But, here's the key. It's vital that we don't miss his reasoning. What Paul is going to lay out in these four verses today is absolutely crucial to our understanding of sanctification or the process of being made holy. Uh, Hence the the new graphic behind me. Um, Thank you, Christian. In this chapter and maybe the next chapter, we're going to be focusing on the idea of holiness. Now, back months ago, we were at an elders' retreat, and our elders felt burdened that we needed a, a series on holiness. But after looking at where we were going to be in Romans this fall, we realized that the Lord had providentially worked it out that we would be in Romans 6, which would have been a key chapter that we would have used in a series on holiness. So what we decided to do was just 
Start this series right as we move through Romans. So this is the first message of that series. The title of this message is Union with Christ. Now, some of you may have heard this idea before. Many of you probably haven't. Um, But the ideas that Paul lays out right here in these four verses are central to our understanding of this incredible doctrine. So look back at the text with me. Paul's reasoning for his emphatic by no means first comes through a rhetorical question. He asks this rhetorical question. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now we must ask, what does Paul mean by saying that, right? Douglas Moo, who writes one of the best commentaries on this text, states that Paul can only have one of two different intentions by writing this, by asking this rhetorical question. The first is that he is intending to make a moral plea or appeal to his audience. He is pleading with them to not sin based on the fact that they have died to sin. So it would almost be like me standing up here before you this morning and calling you to holiness because you've committed yourself to God. You know, I I might say, you can't continue in sin because you've committed yourself to Christ. And that's a breaking of your commitment. Don't you know what you've committed to? Does that make sense? There's a moral appeal based on a a commitment. Be breaking our commitment to continue in sin. But the other idea that Paul might be up to here would not be a moral appeal, but it would be a theological assertion. Now, what this means is that Paul is using this rhetorical question to set up a point of theology that would contradict anyone who says Christians can sin all the more, or in his words, live in sin. This theological assertion would imply that it is completely impossible for Christians to live in sin. An analogy of this would be as if I stood up here today, and you, you got to pretend in this analogy that you're all fish. Okay, is that easy? All right, you're all fish. And I stood up here and I said, can we who are fish live on dry land? You with me? So what doesn't go through your mind when you hear that is, I know, right? All these fish have been hanging out on dry land, and it needs to stop. It's not what goes through your mind, right? It doesn't go through your mind because you know that God did not create fish with the capacity to live on dry land. They have gills. So the idea here is that Paul is saying, if you have died to sin, you cannot live in it. That's the theological assertion. It's impossible for someone who has died to sin to still live in it. So which is it? (laughs) The second. That's the answer. That's what Paul is doing here. He's not making a moral appeal to you. He's, He's making a theological assertion on the grounds of our union with Christ, as we're gonna see here in just a second. But one thing that tips us off to knowing this, this is important, Um, is the phrase that Paul uses. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Still live in it, right? So if, if he would have said, how can we who died to sin still sin, 
then the door might be open that he's making a moral appeal. Because we know, church, that even after we come to Christ, we still sin. But that's not what he says. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, living in sin is much different from sinning. Living in sin is best taken as describing a lifestyle of sin as a habitual practice of sin, such that one's life could be characterized by sin rather than by righteousness. But again, we all know that a believer at times can live in a way that is inconsistent with who they are in Christ, right? So back to the fish analogy. There might be times when a fish gets tossed up on dry land and he can survive there for a time, but he cannot live there. If you've become one with Christ, you cannot live in sin. You can't do it. Now, I know that some of you are sitting here and you're going to say to me, oh, Corey, 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 I know people, I know people who have lived in sin for years, even decades, Corey, before repenting. Okay? Well, let me tell you a quick story. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, uh, I had a I had booked a very well-known guy to come and speak for a big church countywide conference. Some of you may know or have been to it. It's called D-Now. Uh, one year I booked a guy who was reformed. Um, and, and, and all that means is that he believed the doctrines of grace. And if you don't know what those doctrines are, I can tell you about them after church, but that's not the point of this story. Um, after it became public knowledge of, of the guy that I had booked, um, I, had been, I got invited by another local youth pastor. Uh, there were like 30 churches invited to this event. Uh, one of those churches, uh, who was led by a youth guy, uh, he, he came and wanted to have lunch with me. And so we went to lunch, and while we were there, he brought up the guy who I had invited to speak. He began telling me how he has issues with the doctrines of grace. And uh, I want you to listen to the best point he had to make in refutation to the doctrines of grace. Grace. He said, when it comes to irresistible grace, this is one of the doctrines, I just can't get down with that. Because you see, I resisted God's grace for a long, long, long time. I mean, for years I resisted him. So how in the world could I have done that if his grace is irresistible? you see the problem here? Um, what I didn't have the heart to tell him right there was, it seems like God won. Um, so your resisting didn't hold up, right? Uh, I didn't have the heart to tell him that because I try not to argue about these things. And, uh, but you understand what I'm saying. Just because we can resist, just because we can think we're living in sin, if we have died with Christ, we cannot live in sin because we've died to it. So back to Paul's question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? We can't, church. We can't. Maybe we can for a week or a month or a year or several years, but if you've been united to Christ, then you cannot remain in sin. You can't. That's what Paul's saying. So we could say that this is the first thing that our union in Christ gives us. It gives us an inability 
to live in sin. Now we must ask, what does it mean that we have died to sin? How is it that we have become incapable of remaining in sin? We'll look at verse 3. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? All right. Now Paul brings up baptism. He says that we have been baptized into Christ Jesus. Let's just begin with that part. When we hear the word baptism, where, do, where does our mind go? Answer, to the baptistry, right? Our physical baptism that we received after believing in Jesus. Now, this physical baptism was definitely in view here by Paul because this baptism is extremely important. Our baptism, listen to this, our baptism is the physical grace-giving sign that the inward miraculous reality has taken place. It's the physical grace-giving sign of an inward miraculous reality. You understand? And this miraculous reality, don't miss this, this miraculous reality is that we have been immersed, which is literally what the Greek word means, immersed, into the person of Jesus. We've been immersed into Christ Jesus. So let me be clear. Your baptism doesn't just represent you dying to sin and resurrecting to new life. Your baptism represents your union with Christ's death, your union in his death. You understand? And, and your, your, your resurrection in him, his resurrection, that's what this baptism represents. Your union with Christ in his death and your union with him in his resurrection. That's the essence of our union with Christ. When we believe in Jesus, we become one, immersed into his person. That's a much deeper understanding of our baptism, right? Like you're becoming one with Christ when you believe in him. Now, you might be wondering, why haven't I heard about this before? And the answer is, you probably have, but you just didn't realize the explicit nature of what you were reading. Because Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, or in the Lord, or in him, 164 times in the New Testament writings as shorthand for this union. It really lights up the way you read in Christ, right? He's not just using words in a flippant way, he's, he's saying things with his words. Paul understood our union with Christ as what it meant to be Christian. The scriptures also give us several analogies that represent this oneness or union in order to help us better understand it. In Ephesians 2, this union is likened to that of a building and its cornerstone. In John 15, it's likened to a vine and its branches. In Ephesians 1 and 1 Corinthians 12, it's likened to a human body and its head. And while all these can't perfectly explain this union, they definitely help us understand the significance of it. Church, what happens if a building loses its cornerstone? Answer, it falls. What happens to branches that are not connected to the vine? They don't produce fruit. 
And what happens to a body that is disconnected from its head? It dies. But church, a building that has and is built on an unshakable cornerstone stands forever. A branch that is connected to the vine produces much fruit. And a body that is connected to its head lives. And this is our hope as Christians, not in ourselves, but the one whom we have union with. Yeah, so here's the deal. Earlier we talked about what we received from being in Adam. Two things, remember? Condemnation and his polluted nature. Therefore, when we believe in Jesus, we are most certain that we have been justified and no longer stand condemned before God. Paul has already spent an incredibly significant amount of time on this doctrine, the fact that we have been justified before God. Now what Paul is saying in our text is that as much confidence that we have in our justification, so too, so too, should we be that confident of our sanctification. Just as confident as you are, you do not stand condemned before God, so too you should be incredibly that much confident that you will be sanctified to be like him. For you see, justification is not something we receive first, and then we must work toward our sanctification. No, our justification and sanctification are both benefits that we receive from our union with Christ. That's the understanding. The reason you will never stand condemned before God is because you are in Christ, and Christ stands justified before his Father. And the reason you will be sanctified is because you are in Christ, and Christ has sanctified himself so that you will be sanctified according to John 17, 18. That's good news, church. God has made himself one with us. It's mind-boggling. I don't think any of us can really grasp that. (laughs) Um, It's unbelievable. The maker of heaven and earth has breathed his life into dust, and that dust rebelled against him. And yet he gave his life for that dust and made himself one with his creation, again, redeeming them forever. Forever we will be one with Christ. Let's go deeper. Look at the second part of verse 3. Paul says that we weren't just baptized into Christ Jesus, but he gets very specific and says we were baptized into his death. I just mentioned this a moment ago, but what does this mean? What does it mean that we've been baptized into Christ Jesus' death? Well, church, as I was just in awe of, we have a God who's like no other, creator of the heavens and earth, but yet condescended and dwelt among us. The doctrine of incarnation teaches us that the one true God became like us. He took on flesh. 
He condescended because in order to save humanity, he must have become human. Now what Paul is saying is that when Jesus died, check this out, we died with him. When he was nailed to the cross and endured the wrath of God, we were with him. He wasn't just doing this in a disconnected manner. In him were all the elect as he was hanging on the cross enduring the wrath of God. In him. We were in him. Joseph Tucker called me this week and we were talking about this and man, did he say something profound. I was sharing with him about this union and he brought up Noah's Ark. He said, man, this, this makes me think uh, uh, about like Noah's Ark and how like Noah was in the ark during the flood and therefore was unharmed by God's wrath. It was the ark that endured the flood, but Noah remained safely inside while still passing through death. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yes, it is good. That's exactly right. Precisely the point that Paul is making here. You were in Christ before the foundations of this world. Let that mess with your head. Like, what? He's saying that we were baptized into Christ Jesus' death. What was Jesus' death to? So we were with him, in him, as he was on the cross. But what was his death to? It was to sin. Jesus died to sin. This is why the Hebrews writer warns the one who continues in sin that you are re-crucifying the Son of God. It's because you become one with Jesus. And he's already died to sin. So how can you still live in it? You can't. You can't because you have become one with Christ. You've become one with him. Oh, this is, this is more intimate than you think. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Talking about marriage here, right? But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You're not your own. Striking words. And next week, we'll get deeper in this idea of being dead to sin all the more. But don't miss Paul's main point in 1 Corinthians passage. Your members are Christ's members. You become one spirit with him. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You have been made one with Christ. Isn't it a serious thing to be a Christian? This isn't that you've just gotten in line and received a, a ticket to heaven. 
That's not what this is. This is a union with Christ, the God of all glory. Created everything that you know. Become one with him. You're one. In verse 4, Paul tells us that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in death, into death. In order that, just get this, in order that just as Christ was raised by the dead, was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, church, might walk in a newness of life. Now, make mention, uh, or make, make note here that Paul mentions that we were buried. Why does he do that? Why does he, why does he bring up burial? Well, a significance it has is that uh, when we're buried, there is a finality to our person. We begin to rot and return to dust. When you die, your body's gone. Burial assures that death is final. Unless you are resurrected. You see, it's here that Paul turns to Jesus' resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, church, it was not like Lazarus being raised from the dead only to die again in the very same body. That's not the resurrection Jesus had. No, Jesus rose in a glorified state. In this new body, he could walk through walls, be at one place and then another. This new body was wholly different from the previous body that died and was buried. So Paul takes this reality and applies it to us. He says, just as Christ was raised by the dead from the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We too might walk differently, fundamentally different from our old life. And David's going to preach a, a lot more on this in two weeks. But please don't miss this. You just can't miss this. You must understand that Christ's death and resurrection are the redemptive realities through which the dominion of sin is presently overcome in us and we are changed to new life. Christ's death and resurrection have present and operative effects in the lives of those united to Jesus. They're not merely sentimental. They're real. They have real power in your life today. Now what are those present and operative effects? Well, question 36 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that those effects include assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance to the end. (laughs) That's good news. That's good news. And this is the good news that Paul delivers to us at the beginning of chapter 6. Why does he deliver this uh, news to us about our union with Christ right here, right right here at at this point in his letter? Well, here's the thing. If you don't understand union with Christ, you will inevitably misunderstand sanctification and holiness. Plain and simple. Our sanctification is definitive in nature. Precisely because our union with Christ is definitive in nature. 
What this means is that we have experienced an actual and decisive break from the power of sin through participation in Christ's death. We also are experiencing an actual and decisive newness of life through participation in his resurrection. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, church. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, what? Creation. A new creation. Not a better creation. Not an improved creation. A new creation. The old has what? Passed away. And behold, the new has come. So church, as I, as I wrap things up, I don't want you to walk away, and, and I know this is like a lot, obviously, but if you walk away today, I, I want these two things that I'm about to say to stick with you, all right? So lock in here. Number one, sanctification is a work of God. It's received by us, not achieved by us. This is why exhortations toward holiness are not to achieve holiness, but to live out the holy existence that already is in us. You understand? Negatively, what that means is that gratitude is not the foundation for your sanctification. Christ is. Christ is. It's great. We should be thankful for what Christ has done. But being thankful in a sentimental way has no power to transform you. Christ, real and present grace does. Being connected to him in his union does. That's our hope, church. You being more sentimental is not your hope to be sanctified. Jesus alone is in your union with him. Gosh, look on some of your faces. It's just like, why? I know. Number two, sin is a self-contradiction in the Christian life. Sin is a self-contradiction in the Christian life. When we sin, we decreate what God has created and is creating in us. Therefore, here's some things to be reminded of when you sin. Do you not know that your body is a holy temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Do you not know, church, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Do you realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. But remember what we said earlier. These are not meant to be moral appeals. They're meant to be theological assertions. So think on them. Think on these things. Think on these realities. Marinate on these realities. Don't just say them to yourself louder. This is our hope. That we believe, church, we believe what Christ has done and what Christ says about us. That's our hope. So church, 
what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness today. God, I do pray that the reality that you have given us through your incarnation, through your redemption, through your crucifixion and resurrection, God, we would, yeah, we would, we would drink deeply of these realities, God. We would think on these realities. These realities, God, would be the, the source. You, Jesus, would be the source of our justification and sanctification, God. Father, I pray for those who are not in union with you, that that may have been made very real to them today. God, the call is not to be better. The call is to be one with Jesus. And so we pray, Father, that you would Increase our union with you, God. Give us, make, your, make this so much better believed in our lives, God. That we may cling to you all the tighter. I pray you would hold us fast, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.